This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with business and leadership expert, Dave Klein. He discusses the qualities of a good leader and how individuals can develop and learn these skills, what makes an effective team and how you can develop this within your environment, as well as anecdotes around real life experiences and how these can be transferred from the business into the sports world. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So Dave, really appreciate you jumping on with me. Um, I know we caught up a little bit there, but it sounds like you're all, all good and safe and well you're in. Yeah, no complaints at all, Michael. The uh, spring is starting to peek its head out over here in, uh, in New England, so spirits are getting high. Good. So um, I think, as, as I mentioned to you when we spoke before the podcast, for me, this is really interesting uh, opportunity just to learn a little bit more around like leadership, management, team efficiency, all that type of stuff. And obviously, with this podcast being about sport, a lot of the people listening will be team-based or have to manage a multidisciplinary team. So hopefully, this is something that really can enlighten um, practitioners and the way that they work with the people that they do. So do you want to give a little bit of a, a whistle-stop tour, a little bit of background on yourself, what you currently do and what's led you down this route in particular? Yeah, look, I think the, um, you know, the quick whistle-stop would be an engineering by undergrad with an MBA, a stop in consulting, and then 10 years at Moody's, which is a big fortune 500 financial services firm and then another decade at Bridgewater um, across those last two stops would kind of make up the t- majority of my 20 year career. I sort of touched every part of the business. I did marketing. There was technology. I was the COO of a couple groups lots of, and I've kind of wrapped up in um, recruiting, talent development, executive um, leadership, et cetera. And, you know, when I left Bridgewater 15 months ago, I set out to buy a business. We kicked the tires on everything from an oil change franchise to a couple of local mom and pop shops missed out on a few digital website um, assets, but ultimately bought a company called Skillscatter that does online education reviews. Um, and when we were just genuinely excited about the rising tide in that space, you know, so many major players, you know, the Udemy's and the master classes and the Skillshares, but also emerging players in the cohort space. So the Mavens and OnDeck and Reforge um, that are sort of blending, you know, access to the best instructors, uh, you know, a, a global set of students raising their hand to take like a topic from that instructor at that moment in time. And so there's like this energy of disruption that I'm super excited about. And so that was the thesis behind buying that business, you know, and then serendipity has intervened and I'm now um, also running my own cohort courses. And so that's, uh, that is the current stop on the, on the whistle. Perfect. So when we, when we look at, I guess, um, leadership or management, et cetera, what, in your experience, uh, disciples a good leader from maybe a bad leader or a good manager from a bad manager. Gotcha. It's a big one. Um, you know, almost in my mind, I, I almost oftentimes when I'll tweet, uh, I will sort of tweet, you know, managers do this, but leaders do that. Um, and I do think that there is something to the language, like language matters, right? So managers are sort of drawing boundaries and being clear and there's a place for that but but the best ones start to remove obstacles erase boundaries and inspire people to go further right they sort of believe in people before they can believe in themselves and so um you know when i'm whether i'm teaching or i'm writing i'm thinking about leaders you know the the first place i start is with self-awareness right that that you need to know yourself very well because each leader there's not like a cookie cutter principle right like no, not everybody's going to be an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs. Like you can't just say, I want to emulate that and, and achieve it. Cause you will have had different formative moments. You'll have a different mindset. You'll have different opportunities. And so instead, if you start with self-awareness, you can start to then say, well, where do I fit in my own system? And where do I need to supplement and complement? Right. Where do I need to surround myself with the team of people who, um, are better than I am in particular ways, especially where I'm weak and where am I better and can use my superpower so that the, the unit is better than um, any individual. So I think that's where it starts. The other advantage to leaders starting with self-awareness in my mind is 
um, it gives them a language and a like a vividness for how they can size up other people, right? So when I'm thinking about leading and motivating and inspiring, I have to meet you where you are, Michael. Like I have to kind of know, you know, are you the type of person I have to push and challenge or are you the type of person I have to like more first support? Are you going to respond to, you know, written notes that give you direction? Or are you going to respond to kind of whiteboard sessions that are open-ended, you know, and that would be like in a workplace context. But I think you see this with um, coaches and athletes as well. Like if I just look at, you know, one of the threads I wrote that um, went pretty viral was around Sean McVay, right? And he would constantly talk about making the system match the talent, right? So I have this team and I can hope that they could play my offense or I can adjust my offense to maximize what they have. And you saw that he could take that approach pretty far. You know, like he... You know, over the last three or four years, he's been a playoff. He's been a he's been a playoff coach, but not a Super Bowl coach. This year, they went all in and moved the talent up, which allowed them to have more flexibility with the system, and the results kind of spoke for themselves. And so, but all of that is still premised on like, how well does he know himself? Could he bring in other coaches to complement him? Many of whom have now gone on to be successful coaches in the league, and could he then size up his team so that he could adjust his system to get the most out of them? So that's. Um, if I were picking one thing, I feel like most of these leaders are deeply self-aware. In terms of them having this self-awareness or them developing the self-awareness or any particular ways they do this, um, have you seen best practice in this area as an individual that's really gone out of their way to make sure they are self-aware and constantly checking in around this principle? Yeah, I think there's two pretty common elements. Um, one of them is they all seem to have developed a practice for reflection. Like it's, it's intentional and it's deliberate. You know, the one that you'll see a lot will be journaling. Um, you know, like I said, I spent 10 years at Bridgewater. And if you, if you read Ray's book or listen to him from early on in his running of what's now the world's largest hedge fund, he would literally write down not just every trade he would make and then how it turned out, but sort of like what he was thinking, what was motivating him, like what led him to that decision, like what was the logic behind it, so that when it played out, he could go back and understand, like, when was he thinking clearly and making good calls? When was he thinking unclearly and making bad calls? Where did he work from assumptions versus data, et cetera? And so you see that process of um, trying to very systematically build reflection in. And, and I do find that it tends to be the most effective when written, like there's real clarification in writing it down um, versus just contemplating. Um, the other thing that um, I've noticed studying kind of like famous leaders in general is they, they don't just tolerate negative feedback. They sort of hunt for it. Like they want to know when they're wrong. They want to know when they're like going the wrong direction. They seek out experts. They like have really thoughtful people beat the crap out of like their ideas. Um, you know, uh, I, I mean, I think I, I have a, a, a buddy online who wrote a thread about Elon Musk and Elon chimed in on the thread and said, yep, number seven, I hunt for that stuff, you know? And you're like, wow, this guy just bought Twitter and is on his fifth company or whatever at this point. Um, and he's going around asking people to like, give me back, give me negative feedback, like help me be better. And so I think if you pair those two things, right? An engine to metabolize and reflect and then like the fuel coming from believable people, that becomes kind of a nice flywheel for really generating that kind of robust self-awareness that fuels leaders. And in, in your experience with that feedback, does it come from uh, kind of respected sources in terms of it's people that they know and trust? Or is it wide ranging in terms of just listening to Again, it might be any Twitter conversation or anything, any email that comes through on your on your email. Where, where do they generally try and locate that type of negative feedback? Um, I think the short answer is both with a caveat. So I think, um, you know, we have this concept at Bridgewater of like looking for believable people, right? Believable either being like really strong logic or preferably a track record of the thing we're talking about. Right. So if I want to learn how to create a new robust email campaign, I'm better off talking to someone who has created dozens of email campaigns than to talk to someone who has good logic about it. Um, 
but for more creative things that haven't been done, then logic and intuition and creativity might rule the day. So I think there's one of like seeking those believable people. There's a synthetic form of believability, which would be like crowdsourcing, right? Like there's this idea that if you're, if you're hearing the same thing over and over from a lot of people, there's a high probability they're right and you're wrong. So you should listen. So even if you wouldn't point to any individual and say like, oh, I should listen, you know, when you're in a room and, and nine people say one thing and you say the other, and often when it's about you and a blind spot, it, it should at least give you pause, you know? Um, the caveat would really be this idea of be careful who you ask questions of because everybody will answer you. You know what I mean? And so if you're not considering that believability and I, you know, go up to a stranger and I'm like, oh, what do you think about this? Not that many people will be like, I actually have no idea and tell you that they'll give you an answer. And then if you're now going to allow that answer to direct you, you know, you're not necessarily thinking critically or independently. Um, and so you, you do have to be mindful, you know? Um, that, that's how I tend to see it work best. Uh, that makes complete sense. And I guess transferring this maybe into a sporting capacity, which is how do you, um, or how, how the leaders go around identifying what their vision for that club needs to be? Um, because again, you could, if, if you're the Los Angeles Lakers head coach or GM, you could go around and outsource this to all the fans. Well, their quick response would be, we want to win. And that, that's it. <laughs> that's all we want to do. We don't care about anything else. But then obviously from an internal point of view, you've got to think about commercial values, marketing, you know, player weight, uh, salaries, etc. So how do you go around or how do they go around sitting down and going, right, us as an organization, this is what we believe in. And this is our vision moving forward. Uh, yeah, I guess that's the, the question from there. It's like such a good question. The, um, you know, I, on the sporting side, I feel like I only sort of have a window into it from like looking at some of the best leaders, you know, so I don't feel like I've got like a full canon to say like, this is how it's done. You know, when I, when I was looking at Greg Popovich, I know you're a Spurs fan. Um, a lot of that emanated from him, right? Like if you go, all the way back, you know, to when he started, there's like a certain humility in that organization that aren't, isn't in most sports franchises, which came from him basically saying like, he was the GM and promoted himself to be coach and he had never coached. You know what I mean? He's like, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring in smart people. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to study, I'm going to connect with people. And that turned into like a, a governing philosophy of the organization that then started to lead at least for the first 20 years, like, they were the ones who went international because, um, you know, I believe, you know, he was quoted as sort of saying like American basketball had become too individual and he couldn't find that humility and that team centric person in the U S anymore. So he was going international, but then you also see how it has to evolve, you know, to your point of, um, especially in sports, there's this hopefully not conflicting because if you win, you tend to also make money. Um, but these kind of these organizations that get stuck in sort of a mediocre state, they do end up starting to make trade-offs between are we going to win this year? Or are we going to be profitable this year? You know, and even the Spurs, despite their like massive success, what was it like 20 plus years without a losing record or 20, you know, 20, 20 plus years without a lottery pick. 21, um, I think that's what we yeah, got. Like, like crazy, you know, like, like anyways, it's like a, it's like a wild level of consistency but even that, like, he started had to, like, adjust to, A, the American players started to play differently again. But B, you sort of looked what was winning around the league. Like, you needed a nucleus of, like, two or three stars, you know. And then could you find the version of the stars that would fit that? You know, I think they lucked out with Duncan being one of them. I mean, he sought that out and found him from another country. But also, you know, that and Tony Parker and others. And, but how that's evolving and you and I were talking before we got on here it'll be interesting to see how the next coach leads that team you know will they have to will they will they can carry on in that same way where humility still reigns supreme or will something else take over um so again I think it mostly emanates from the, the leader you know yeah and so when I get <clears throat> looking at it in a business context mm -hmm. if you've got a manager of a, of a big bank or a hedge fund it's very mm -hmm. easy to go we're just going to make the most money you know, that, that our vision is make as much money as you can. But then obviously as a 
as a strategy or as a moral compass probably isn't great and probably doesn't give you quantifiable objectives as an organization. So when you're looking at annual top, what type of conversations are leaders having that they hope to disseminate down the organization? And what, are, what kind of messages are they looking to portray to their staff to then hopefully get that buy-in, which does result in that and potentially loads of money? Well, what's so interesting about Drew, the parallel between at least the ones I've experienced, um, even, even at Bridgewater, the goal was never stated to make money. It was almost like a byproduct that, you know, the, the stated goal was to understand the world, that there were these forces, um, there were these different drivers that, while complicated and like massive in their data, could be understood. And so for us, it was much about like the process and compounding that understanding and the byproduct, if you did it well, was making a lot, you know, it was making a lot of returns for your investors. And I think if you look at sports, a lot of the coaches, you know, whether it's, you know, I think Nick Saban popularized the process, right? Like that same idea where like Alabama doesn't say like our goal is to win. They say like our goal is to, you know, run out 80 or 100 like high intense athletes every single day who do the right thing at each step and winning will take care of itself. And so it's, you know, I would love to like interview more leaders of, you know, businesses to understand like how common that is. Cause at least in the places I've been, it seems like what most people from the outside would think is the goal turns out to not be the goal. There's usually something, a higher order mission that people can rally around and then the success sort of falls out of it. Yeah, that's really interesting. The bit you said there, which I pick on is the rallying around. So I know looking at a lot of your, your threads and comments is around like the efficacy of a team and how um, teams can work well together or potentially not work together. So when we are looking at a team in a team context, what foundations does a team need in order to be effective and work well? Yeah. Um, the, the, it's a, it's an easy answer as a starting point, which is trust. Like the, and I think it's true in sports. It might even be more true in sports, but it's certainly true in business where um, the reason you've even come together as a team is because you, you have to fundamentally believe we can accomplish more as a unit than we could as an individual, right? And then that's gonna come with all of the complexities that make us human. And if we don't have trust, then every small hiccup, mistake, gaffe, that is very natural of ambitious people trying to strive and do great things, whether that's, you know, win a Super Bowl or a World Cup, or to become a viable organization and impact a mission, like, it's going to tear that group apart, unless they, they say like, A, we have this mission above it, but it's all built on a foundation where like, I know you have my best interest, and you have my best interest. You know, I appreciate the differences in you and you appreciate the differences in me and we're excited to be on this in this together um so i think without trust and manufacturing that as fast as you can it's really hard to build something like lasting and enduring i see you know, probably know where my next question is going to go you mentioned the manufacturing that as quickly as you can what mm -hmm. what type of foundations or steps can you put in place be it as a manager of a company you're in or if you were going into a company in the first hundred days what are you looking to do to try and manufacture that trust with the people that you're working with? Yep. Um, <clears throat> no particular order, but these are the ones that I would use. Um, and I've seen other people use. Um, one is like lead with vulnerability. So one of the easiest ways to get people to trust you is to show them that you're fallible, right? That like, I, I certainly am not perfect. I'm gonna make mistakes. I have weaknesses and warts just like anybody else. And you can literally lead with that. And it usually catches people off guard because you, most times people are rolling out with their accolades and their successes. And so, but you're setting a tone and you're saying like, not only am I expecting, you know, expecting mistakes, I'm accepting them and I'm actually, I'm actually encouraging them. And so people are like, oh, okay, like that's pretty interesting. You know, like, so I would start there. The second is um, tilt heavily towards questions versus answers people like to talk about themselves, like ask them, ask them about themselves. And 
more importantly, like care about the response. You know what I mean? So whether you're, it's a, you know, so many athletes will talk about some of the happiest times being, you know, in the locker room, or I think Chris, Chris Pronger did a thread yesterday about like the travel and like some of the happiest times were like on the bus and the plane. And that's, that's them connecting as humans, not them like practicing, not them like engaging on the, on the court, but it leads to better performance in those moments because they, they do have that relationship and that trust. And so, you know, it's like a cocktail party, like be more interested than interesting. And I think if everyone ends up playing that way, the trust can be, can be accelerated as well. And then, um, I think a new one, it's not new, but it's like in hand, maybe it's like, um, enhanced at the moment. We've all gone so remote. We've been doing zooms and like, this is, you know, the, the idea of like video chat being this high fidelity has come a long way, but it's still not quite the same as like shared in-person experiences. And so again, if I were like bringing together a new team, um, you know, whether that's like flipping the model, which used to be offsites now being onsites, you know, but I would try to bring that team together and give them a shared experience. And the closer you can make that experience to be some sort of, um, I used to do this with a number of teams. Like you have like some sort of challenge or gauntlet. Um, like one team we had was sort of like not gelling. And so um, we went up into Vermont three hours away. We rode a bus, you know, we did some work on the way. And then <laughs> we weren't planning for the snowstorm, but the snowstorm showed up. We made them hike a mountain. Like we all snowshoed a mountain to the top. And then there was like a big, you know, party and cocktails at the top of the mountain that we had had set up. But it was like a solid couple thousand foot ascent um, from a wide range of like, physical abilities and health. Uh, but everyone still talks about it. Like no one was in danger, uh, but we didn't go any faster than the slowest person. And we went through that adversity together and it sort of created this like very rapid bonding and shared experience. And I, I think you sort of get that built in in a good way with athletics, but you have to sort of intentionally orchestrate it a bit more at companies. Um, and so that's a, that would be like my third piece of like, if you want to manufacture that, Right, like get to the trust, ask lots of questions, and then find a gauntlet for the team to share. And can that be done? Um, I guess, in your opinion, can that be done when you go new into a place with existing relationships? With, say, for example, what I came into a business now. Every person there has been working there for ten years or whatever it is. Their existing relationships. I'm a new leader, or does that need kind of fresh and new blood within it to help that that process? Um, I, you know, it, it's hard to answer in the abstract, right? Like, I think if I am, I think the thing I just described works really well for a brand new team, brand new company, et cetera. Um, if I were going to go drop into a company, like you said, that long track record existing team, maybe the manager left and I'm replacing them. I think I'm, I'm doing the first two things I described and then using what I learned from that to then pick plot my next move. Right. So I am. I'm going in and just sort of sharing what I'm like. I'm going in and asking tons of questions because I, I'm at a disadvantage in every direction. I don't know the people. I don't have the relationships. I don't know the company. I don't know the mission, but they hired me for some reason, right? They, they put me in charge of this team and not one of the other people I'm now managing for a reason. Could be good, could be bad, but I want to understand that full landscape and then choose my move. You know what I mean? Because the first move might not be... Um, Oftentimes in the scenario you're providing, I'm going in there because something's wrong, right? A healthy team, sort of like we were talking about with the Spurs, right? They're probably going to promote one of their assistants. Like he's been grooming people who could take over for him for a long time. So a healthy team has succession planning. So if I'm coming in from the outside, the probability that that team is super healthy and thriving is low, right? So that might mean my moves are going to be different to start. My move might be to cut half the team. My move might be to like restructure it because people I have the right people, but they're not set up well. And then at some point when I sort of have like the right people in the right spots, I might try to like orchestrate that like moment of challenge to pull them together into that new formation. From my perspective, when you're, when you're in that position, how important is it to one, understand what was going wrong before and then two, maybe understanding where challenges lay or lie. Because um, I'd imagine if, if you're walking into that dynamic, you, you may have individuals that don't see eye to eye or previously have had some gripes that you may not be aware of. So how integral is it to find out what those were and then whether you need to address them or not? 
Um, <clears throat> I would say, I would think of it almost in two phases. So my answer is paramount. Like the very first thing you want to do while you're building that trust is just the reason you're listening is to understand the full, the full landscape, especially the problems. Like what are you dealing with? And the problems that traverse the entire stack, right? Like, are we chasing the wrong goal? Do we have bad products or do we have like bad strategies? Do we have, um, are the people on the team not trained or are they weak or are they misaligned? You know, do we have all the way down to like cultural, like do we have bad behavior, you know, on the team? Do people have bad habits? What are the things I'm going to have to address? And so I'd say like understanding them deeply is paramount. Then in the second phase, it's a bit of, um, it's an old movie, so I'm going to date myself. That little pen they have in Men in Black <clears throat> where everyone sort of erases their memory. I think you as the manager have to like take those problems and then come up with the strategy and then sort of erase and just say like, today's a new day. And you get, you sort of need to like get everyone to put their baggage on the carousel and let it go away and start going down the new path. And hopefully most of them will be able to do that. Um, and then the ones who can't, you might have to move on just because they can't. Right. And so that would be the, um, but I also don't think you want to come in and like accept the problems as is and then hold it over everybody. You know what I mean? Like you, people do, people might not like transform, but I've been shocked by people who will underperform either with the wrong leadership, the wrong alignment, the wrong incentives, et cetera. And so before I was like just cleaning house for the sake of it, I think you could, you can like understand those problems, realign them, give them a clean slate. Um, but then behind that clean slate, you're probably, a, it's probably a fast remove if they're not good. Mm -hmm. And I think you see this with sports a lot, right? You know, like a new coach comes in and it's sort of like, well, it'd be cheaper to keep these guys, but it becomes very quickly to f figure out who's getting traded. See also NFL draft in two days. Yeah, I guess my next question was going to be, I appreciate some of the, the information that you were talking about will be privileged. You can't mention names or anything like that. But have you got any particular scenarios where you, you've been into a place or seen a place or heard of a, an example where, you know, a, a leader has gone in and seen this baggage that was within a company and then they work with them to try and remove it and actually they've had success of people maybe having longer running feuds within that environment that have like you said, then they have to drop the baggage off at the carousel. I'm like going way, it's more I can speak to one that I experienced. Um, so if I go way back, um, there was a restructuring of Moody's when I was there. And it was very, it was relatively early in my management career. And, we, and I, I had a team of two. Um, and then overnight in the restructuring, I had a team of 38. And all the, the way that things moved around, like literally there was no, there was a couple managers, but for the most part, I just had 38 new direct reports. Um, and what was interesting was a lot of the baggage seemed to be connected to A, the design, but B, some of the managers who were in place who were no longer part of the team. And my path through it, because again, I didn't, I don't, I didn't know most of these people was to actually have them design it. Um, like not in a, um, not fully democratic, you know, not a, yeah, everyone vote and whatever the crowd says is what we'll do. But I sort of broke it up into different pieces and said like, okay, I've listened and here are the problems I've heard you say. So there's like four, you know, there's four or five problems with our culture and how we behave together. And so it was also, it was also four or five different offices around the world. And so I said like, you know, pull someone from each office and put them like, Hey, can you guys come up with like the agreement on what our behaviors will be? And then great, like you guys said, there's all these problems with how we were designed and how people interact. So can you five make a recommendation on how we should be aligned? You five, and so I kind of went through four or five different places so that everyone had a piece that they were gonna help co-author. You know, and I made it clear, like they were making a recommendation, I was making a decision. Um, but because they all co-authored it, it gave me a new weapon. Uh, I chose that word very intentionally for all the subsequent gripes that would show up, which was like, okay, like, well, you designed it, right? It's not to say like, you, I expected you to be perfect, but like, okay, you created this. Great, now we're learning together. So now we're in the same side of the table. We're, it's not like, you know, it wasn't like anything was imposed upon them necessarily. It wasn't, you know, all, it wasn't the world happening to them. Like they had happened to the world. They had had their moment 
to create the best team that they create. And so that allowed us to kind of get past a lot of like the individual baggage. Um, so I don't find like totally, it's like a perfect example for what you were striving at. Um, but, but tell me like, I, no, I think it's really good. And I think that we, we talk about co-authoring and a lot of coaches will do this at the start of the season. They'll co-author the rules of the group. So we don't turn up late. We don't use our phones during meetings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's quite a common one. But actually, is there more of a body of work of coaches understanding they might be part of how how we want to play? So actually, do you regret or how do you want to defend? So if you've got, you know, your starting 11 in a football team, how do we want to defend? How, how do you want that starting 11 to defend? And you seg break it into segments, they're going to do the thing. But then you go, well, actually, you co-authored this strategy of play. And it's our job to find a way to implement that accurately in a way that suits the individuals we've got, rather than it being dictatorial. Go, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. So I think that, that completely, I completely understand that. It makes sense. I guess the question for me off the back of that is, and you you will have this in a variety of your environments. Chat, uh, I guess, outcome acceptance for something that maybe they disagree with. So if you go into a meeting and you've got three proposals put on the board for you of the next marketing campaign and how we're going to go out and sell this product and, you know, people have spent a lot of their time, a lot of their energy putting this together, they're all in the meeting and you have to make a decision ultimately of what one of those three proposals is going to, we're going to go with. You, you're going to be letting down two teams or you're going to be saying no to two teams. How do you go around helping someone effectively accept decisions for something that they might not necessarily agree with? I have, I have two responses, actually. So, um, which tends to be a pattern. Um, <laughs> my first one is I would never set myself up for that. So, um, what I would be asking those three teams to do is to bring me an agreed upon coherent recommendation. Now, <clears throat> to your point, sometimes that won't happen. Sometimes they'll say like, we just couldn't bring it together. But now we're gonna have two conversations, not one, right? The first conversation is gonna be interesting. Let's understand why you guys couldn't arrive at an agreement on your own independently. Like you are high functioning teams, well-paid executives and professionals. Interesting, right? Like we are one team, we're only playing one game. And the fact that you couldn't solve this on your own is a, it's a failure of a certain size. Not not catastrophic, but like we should learn because what's more important to me than whatever we decided for this campaign is that you guys can figure it out on your own for the next one. And then, in, you know, because we got to take action and we're running a business, like, yes, I'll decide. So, I, but I wouldn't go to a place unless I was being really explicit, like red team, blue team kind of idea that I'm going to pit them against each other because to your point, now I've got two thirds of my team that lost, you know, versus I want everyone to win. And I want to make the rules such that it's the best idea, irrespective of who came up with it, that the team can all rally behind. So that would be my, my one side. Um, the other is a really interesting, um, I really struggle with the following thing. You know, I'd love to even get your, your take on it as well, which is like, there's this concept of like um, dissent and commit. So on one hand, you're going to surround yourself with like great professionals, whether that's in you know business or athletics, and you're you're hiring them because they're excellent, like because they they thrive in some particular way. So um, at the same time, it's like you said, it's not a democracy. Not everyone's going to get their way every time, and so you need you need to both encourage the dissent. Like I have a different point of view. I have a better play to run. I are you know here's what we're missing. And then even if they lose on being the recommendation, now I'm going to commit. Like now I'm going to get full-throated behind the other idea. And I think that's really hard for people. Like, I don't know if what you've seen um, with your other guests or, or like in business or sports, like how do you see people crack that? The, the easiest answer is with great difficulty. Um, <laughs> right. I, I think the honest answer is it probably comes down to establishing the why. And it does come back to that in terms of for someone to be on on board with a outcome or an action which they maybe don't fully support, there needs to be a level of rationale or why behind it that they can support. 
So if it using a sporting context, if if um, in basketball, I'm saying that I'm gonna we're gonna this season rather than going for our two bigs, we're gonna go and shoot threes like Steph Curry. We're gonna we're gonna go and shoot to our heart's content. And you, your bigs are going to come into you and go, well, I'm in a contract year. You could be costing me millions and millions of pounds. Like I've, I've been this effective over the last three years. How can you do this to me? You have to have a rationale of why. Now, he may not like to hear that his production slipped or actually the new draft pick we've got is going to win us this amount more games because of the threes. But he probably needs to hear the rationale behind it. Mm-hmm. But again... This is where like, the descent to conform type thing is difficult because you want people that are going to challenge you and challenge one another to improve and come up with better ideas. But it's that acceptance piece where you've got someone who's willing to descent to a point, but then is willing to go, you know what, for the better of the team, I'm going to go along with this for a period or for the better of the team, let's give this a go and I'm going to fully support it. And I think that's where your higher level players probably are better at that, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's a piece too that comes, I'm just riffing a little bit. The um, the two thoughts I had were, you know, I firmly believe that like a diverse team, especially in business, but I think in sports probably it's also true, um, will produce superior outcomes to like a very homogenous one. But I do wonder if an, a values alignment is actually the place where like you can't compromise. So to like to make that real, right? I could say um, if we all have a value hierarchy, like I think what you had with like the Spurs is like he would hunt for whether he was put language on this or not, like almost like win at any cost, even if the cost is to me, right? And so if you so if you kind of compare that with a value with that as like the primary value, then you end up with players who are like willing to forego money, willing to forego playing time, willing to, because winning was the top value. And I wonder if that also helps that idea where you're like, versus if you have an organization where there's lots of different like competing values, it becomes really hard to reconcile because even if you're like, this is the why, if I value creativity, you know, and you value, you know, the spotlight, it's like, how do those we can have really sensible answers that support that why, but through the lens of our own personal values. That was one thought I had. The other is like short-term, long-term. Like, I wonder if one of the reasons like a, a Tim Duncan can like take a like win first value, if that's what he holds, is also because like people with long-term perspectives know that they can make short-term sacrifices for longer-term gains, right? So you're... Um, I just I just watched the uh, the Williams sisters movie, which is great, right? Like there's this dad, and like it re- resonated so much with me. I have like two girls who are roughly the age of Venus and Serena, not nearly as talented. I'm not nearly as thoughtful a father in terms of planning before they were born for them to be tennis stars. But um, you know this um this idea that he was turning down contracts, right? They're living this like very impoverished life. And he's turning down $2 million, $3 million, $4 million, $5 million contracts because he could see the longer term. And so make those near-term sacrifices for the bigger term gain in, in the long run. Like turning down them playing junior tennis for five years until they could play pro. You know, stuff like that. Um, I wonder if that's the other, that would be the other thing. If you could like surround yourself with people with long-term vision who can say like, yeah, I'll forego a little bit of contract or a little bit of playing time because I know that winning will come with more endorsements and come with like more team stuff. And like, ultimately I'll probably be richer, you know, even if, even if my value thing is like maximum money, I'd be, I'll get there if I just take a long-term off perspective. Yeah. It's interesting. And potentially as well is the type of people you have in those leadership roles will then affect the rest of the group. So if we're using Tim Duncan as an example, I've read and seen and heard a lot of interviews around the interactions him and Greg Popovich used to have. And they used to say that he used to get the brunt as much as, if not more than everyone else in the way that Pops used to speak to him. So actually, 
the 15th, uh, the uh, 12th, 11th, 10th players couldn't almost answer back in the way that Pop was speaking to him. It's like, well, your superstar is dealing with it because of the sacrifice he's making, that you need to do the same. And I wonder whether in a leadership position, whether it, it's similar to that in terms of if you're the one who is perceived to be in a in a higher position and is therefore not necessarily the case, but earning more money is getting more pressure on them, etc. If you're able to deal with and act in this certain way, then others will follow that and accept that because you do. Because you're not asking them to do something that you're not willing to do, or you're not asking them to do something that you wouldn't you wouldn't do in your role. And I guess there is an element to that in terms of if you're a high performing, high functioning leader, be it on the same level as everyone else or above, is able to and focuses on these areas, then the team will naturally follow that in some capacity. Right. There's a book I I keep getting recommended. I haven't read it yet, but you just triggered it with the Captain class. Have you read that? No, I haven't. No. I th I think it actually hits that exact thesis where the idea is they looked at, I forget the exact criteria because I haven't read it yet, but the idea is they looked at all these dynasties and said like, what was the common element? And it wasn't like the superstar or the unit of superstars or the coach or whatever else. Like the thing that they all had was like this almost like uh, blue collar workman, humble captain. Exactly the thing you're describing was sort of the premise as I understand it. And so it wasn't like the Michael Jordan Bulls didn't quite qualify for the dynasty, but they spent a lot of time on it, apparently, and mostly focused on Bill Cartwright. Right. And so the Spurs is with Tim Duncan you know, and, and they go through, I forget some of the other teams, but it's, um, anyways, this conversation just makes me want to read it more because I, I have a hunch it's like uh, pretty insightful. Would you say that this crosses over in a business context? Would you say that in, in a business capacity, having those individuals that act and present themselves in a certain way then guides the, the, the thoughts or the, the acts, actions of the rest of the group? Yeah, 100%. Like, I think if you look at, um, I think whether you're at a big company or whether you're at a startup, like in the startup, like the, that founding team is so critical. Because to your point, like, there's a point where you'll cross over from, you know, four or five of us can informally interact. And we don't have to codify anything. We can just sort of do our thing. Eventually, you'll get to 20, 30, 50 people. You have to start to like, well, what do we believe? What's our culture? And as much as you might get in a room and brainstorm it, really your culture is going to be the norms of behaviors you've already established because of that initial crew. Like people have our, the culture is already there. Like they're watching you and they're role modeling and they're seeing what works and what doesn't, what gets rewarded, what gets punished, et cetera. And so I think that like founding team becomes super critical and you see the same dynamic at organizations, right? You have a large sales team and people are not just looking to the manager. They're looking at like the top performers and the most seasoned people on the team, like, like the elders, so to speak, not necessarily in age, but in like experience. And I think if, you, if those two sets of people are, are strong and like you said, like role modeling the right behaviors, almost everybody feels the need to fall in line because if that's what get, if that's what rewards both like outcomes and longevity, you know, it's hard to argue. So how, how do you as a leader or how does the group challenge any, I'm going to use the words kind of maverick that comes in to try and challenge that harmony in terms of the way that they act or the processes they go through um, I appreciate again some dissent's good because it challenges the cart horse, makes you be creative, but there's also a point where maybe some of that dissent becomes unhelpful. Um, again, I think it's going to vary and depend on the spectrum you're describing, right? Like in in the strongest groups, I had if if we took it all the way to the extreme, it's like let's use a loaded word, like let's call them toxic. Um. That was the kind of organization where like the team couldn't throw them out as fast as I could. You know what I mean? It was just like, because it was such a tight unit and the norms were understood and, they, and the behaviors, like the alarms were going off immediately. So like, and those have become easy, you know, more in like the, I'm a new person onboarding and there's like this traditional business idea of like storming, norming, conforming, performing, you know, like you're going to go through a journey. 
And a lot of times what ends up happening really well is like those leaders, whether they're leader by authority or just by influence, um, they're the ones who pull the rookie aside, right? And they just be like, yeah, no, don't do that. Like that's not how this rolls or whatever else. And so I think, and if you've built a team that culturally part of it is good dissent, right? Independent thinking, creativity, they're going to be able to tell the difference, right? They're going to, they're going to welcome the difference. They're going to, if we go back to where we started, like they want different opinions. That's why we hired this person and let them into our fold. Um, but they also probably want them to like align into the way that everyone like gels and builds trust to get the best outcome. Right. And so it works. The ideal is like, as the manager, you don't have to say anything because the team sort of handles it. I guess the next question is, and how much do you think these type of situations arise where people come in and challenge dissent, whatever you want to call it, is maybe either a lack of clarity as to the environment or a lack of clarity of communication? Because recently I've been on a course which blew my mind around communication um, and how it can affect and does affect people. How, how much have you seen from your perspective, because I can imagine having that bird's eye view of going into environments and seeing how, how they work, et cetera, can be amazing. How much is a communication issue in terms of people not understanding even as simple as what personality type are you? So therefore, how do you like to receive the information? Um, yeah, how much of an effect does the communication play? Um, huge. Like the, the communication is a, if you were to if you were to read through all my stuff or come you know be in my cohort, you'd hear the word intention a lot, and you'd also hear the word systems a lot. Um, I they tend to manifest like the interface for either of those two things tends to be some form of communication, right? That in order for everyone to line up and go chase the same thing, we sort of have to we've got to understand the mission and the goals. We have to have aligned on not just the what of the expectation, but the how. Right. That how could be cultural norms, that how could be budget, that how can be process. Um, all of those things. And so as a leader, that I'm trying to be very intentional about that. I'm not very disciplined. Like this is um if I just rely on myself to like power through hard things, it doesn't go very well. So I try to be very intentional and then I try to convert that attention into systems. Um that sort of make sure I do what I'm supposed to do when discipline runs low, which is most of the time. Um, you know, and so that idea, uh, you know, of it, of it breaking down at the communication interface makes total sense to me, but it's usually a manifestation of like earlier in the process. Like you either, you have an unclear mission and that hasn't cascaded through. People don't know the goals. They don't know how they're being measured. They don't know the incentives. They don't know what you expect. They don't know the cultural norms. So the more that you can put those on paper, create moments to talk about them, create mythology. Another thing a lot of these great teams do in both sports and companies, they have myths, right? Where instead of telling you that like we're humble, they have a story about how humble, you know, they show humility versus tell you. And so that's like another piece of like how you can do that. And to your point of communication, right? Like people love stories. Stories tend to stick better and resonate more than like, you know, bullet points of like corporate speak. So that would be another piece to build in. But I'd, I think it's back to your original question of like, it's paramount that like you have to use so much information to convey and you have to be good at doing it clearly. Um, and it's up and down the stack. So imagine as a leader being purposeful with that is important. So if you've got a, an introvert who maybe needs a bit of space to go and consider mm -hmm. that information you've given compared to an extrovert who's willing to there and then snap ideas at you or someone who loves facts and figures and will sit there with a notepad and work it all compared to someone who just give me the overall vision and I'll fill in the gaps where I, I need to. That's part of your role in, in terms of providing all of those bases. So all of your team has an opportunity to take on the information that's key to the overall vision in some capacity. I don't know if it was a masterful orchestration of your questions, but you just made a perfect arc from where we started back to, you know, the great leaders adjusting their systems to the people, right? Like why I started with self-awareness being so critical because you want to have that high fidelity picture of your people, meet them where they are to maximize what's going to come out of them. 
and that's just like another piece of it. Like, how do you communicate to them? How do you rally them? How do you inspire them? So. Perfect. I'd love to claim that, but it wasn't. It's just where the conversation went. But we've got one last question for you, which is this. Um, who is the most, um, we'll go impressive, most impressive leader you've seen in action and why? Well, I think we're going to say I've seen them in action. I'm going to, I'm going to bias for someone I've literally worked with. Um, so I did, I got to work with Ray who created Bridgewater, Ray Dalio. Um, what was probably most impressive, um, was he could do two, he could, he could connect two things that were like, it felt otherworldly to me, which is, um, zoom way out, like, like Musk way out. You know what I mean? Like, um, and see the over like massive horizons and, and like very big picture. But then also like traverse down into like the detail and test whether or not it was true. And so like that traversing was like a superpower. Like I just, it is sometimes you like meet with other managers or leaders and you're like, that's pretty cool, but I could probably learn how to do that. And I like would watch this happen over and over. And the first time I was like, wow, that was really impressive. And then I watched it happen over and over and over and over in meetings. And you're just like, damn, I don't know how to teach someone how to do that. You know? And so that was, um, there's aspects of it you can do. It's sort of like you can take conceptual thinking and abstraction and frameworks, and you can do lots of testing with data and experiment and create that cycle. But it's still like the upper level was more upper and the, the, the clarity and focus and like precision of the detail was more detailed. And so I don't quite know how to go to those extremes. I think that's given everyone a little bit of homework to go and practice on <laughs> after this podcast. So, but Dave, listen, really appreciate your time. I think a fascinating conversation around team dynamics and obviously considering individuals in your team and whatnot. So um, really appreciate your time and catch up with you again soon. Appreciate you having me. It's super fun to kind of bounce between sports and business. Let's do it again. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.